Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Zubine for September 6, 2020. I'm your host, David McLaughlin, and join me as always, welcome Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. All right, excited about tonight's show. Here in about 20 minutes, we're going to have Drew Savicki of 270 to Win and Election Twitter. He'll join us and talk about all kind of different issues um, across the country uh, relating to elections, and uh, but until then we've got a you know host of different topics, and we're going to start out with some comments that have been sourced, uh, I guess, multiple ways at this point. There was a, a really long piece, I guess, in the Atlantic um, about several you know episodes or years, really, at this point uh, through the Trump presidency. And the certain comments over in Paris really um, were quite jaw-dropping and grabbed the attention of the political landscape late in the week and into this weekend, and this may actually go into next week. And um, I don't have it right in front of me, but he essentially caught – he was, you know, didn't want to get out at a second um, uh, gravesite. Uh, to honor soldiers that were fallen in World War II, and he called um, the folks that died in war losers. You know, why, why don't I want to uh, honor the losers? And then somewhere else in the reporting called people that um, went and fought in Vietnam suckers uh, because of the war. I don't think that was in the same episode, but it's kind of gotten for the purposes of this story lumped together because it's criticizing people that are our veterans. Um Catherine, just first thoughts on the comments, and then if you want to uh, go into the political implications of it, feel free. Well, it's, it's um, you know, I don't think anybody's surprised after the comments that he made about um, Senator John McCain back, you know, early on in his tenure, and um, you know, what did he say? He likes uh, soldiers that don't get shot down and you know he's made a lot of comments about um, about uh, the military criticizing criticizing the individuals in the military throughout his presidency so I don't think anybody's surprised or if they are they haven't been paying attention but it is a it is um, shocking that he would be, you know, using that kind of language while in France to commemorate uh, an important military moment in our combined history with uh, the Allied forces. So, I mean, and the political ramifications seem to be uh, relatively dramatic uh on the news programs this morning there was a lot of criticism from all different kinds of people they've been criticizing him for the last couple of days um and he's of course pounded back against the fox reporter against the atlantic today he went after Lorene jobs who apparently is a um investor in the atlantic uh steve jobs widow which i think is pretty weird that he would go after her and uh i mean he's just grasping at straws he's clearly uh concerned about the pushback on these remarks and is denying it up and down of course uh but this is the kind of um you know this is the september surprise that um apparently there's more to it too the um editor of the atlantic said there's more to come so 
I saw that, and I can't imagine what that would be. Uh, Tim, your thoughts first on the comments and then starting in on the political implications. Well, you, you know, once they became public, Trump's always done pretty much the same thing that he tried this time, uh, and that is, number one, a strong denial with four or five of his closest people backing him up and then screaming fake news or hoax or blaming it all on someone else, as he again has done here. The difference this time, the problem that he has here is that many people in this country think this is plausible because there are some public examples of things like this, he has said, that are already out there. You you know, like uh, calling John McCain a loser, you know, five years ago and then denying it just the other day on Twitter that he ever did it. But he actually called him a loser on Twitter, you know, five years ago. Uh, Said he wasn't a hero, you know, because he was was captured. Said he knew, remember him saying he knew more about ISIS than the generals do and – you know, uh, this this comes at a this comes at a bad time for him. Um, um, he, of course, he he's going to blame this on General Kelly uh, because of the situation that happened at Arlington, where they were actually standing at the grave of General Kelly's son, and he said, "I don't get it. What what was in it for them?" Yeah, I mean, what is that to say to the father of of a you know a dead soldier and and a and a general at that? I mean, uh, it, it's uh, I, th- this one's kind of sticking, isn't it? I think it is, and um, talking about General Kelly, he believes that he may be the source of it. It would be interesting right. to see if, um, you know, on a Tuesday, because that would be the start of this uh, news cycle this week, tomorrow being Labor Day, if, you know, General Kelly were to come out and back this up and, and what that would do to the story. I know it would give it more legs, which would be a, a big negative for Trump. And, and here's the thing. We know there's the political landscape where – if you know there was a report tomorrow that Donald Trump wanted to take Space Force and land on Pluto by the end of 2020, there'd be some people that would believe it. And then um, there's another folks if you know they they would defend Donald Trump that he didn't have a comb over. And so there's there, there's these you know people that are not persuadable. But this to me is in that little sliver, and it may be even down in the single digits. Uh, uh, folks that are um, persuadable on this, and, and I definitely think that hurts him with that group. Um, it, it either shuts it off to where they won't vote mm-hmm. for him now, or it at least controls the oxygen in the room where nothing else can get taken. And it's kind of like in football, do you have the ball or you don't have the ball? In politics, do you control the news cycle? He's defending, and he's down somewhere in the neighborhood of 8 to 12 points. And so he's got to have the ball. He, he's got to have the news cycle, and this is going to mm-hmm. give nowhere close to giving him the news cycle. Um, and, and then Joe Biden on Friday, he um, spoke out very forcefully on it, um, pushing it even further. Um, did you see those comments, Catherine? I did not. I didn't hear what Joe Biden said. What did he say? Uh-huh. Well, Tim, I think it sounds like you did. Go ahead. Yeah, I, answer that I, and I, I did, and and he was very passionate about what he said. He was giving uh, remarks to reporters, answering questions after he made a talk on Friday, and of course he was asked about this, and and you know he 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 talked about his dead son. He said, you know what, my my son wasn't a sucker or a loser, and neither were any of these other people. He said that a that a president of the United States would would do something like this is just disgraceful. And I mean he just left the hammer down. He he Good. he uh left no doubt uh, 
as, as to how he felt about it. He articulated it very well, and he did it with passion, too, uh, with righteous anger, I guess. Wouldn't you think, David, is the best two words to describe uh, Joe yes, Biden's well, demeanor? Righteous anger. Much more so. Much more so than most presidential candidates, and definitely more so than a lot of uh, Democratic presidential candidates. Yeah. Um, have shown it in, in recent years and been criticized for not being emotional enough in those situations. Um, he, he was, and so yeah. I think that's going to resonate. And, no at, and at the time he's doing that, have you noticed that we do not have a rush of Republican elected officials coming forward to forcefully defend uh, the president on this one. You just, well, how it, can, it's just a, how can anyone defend it? Yeah, that's, that's a good point. Uh, but, normally they try anyway, I mean, they can, but not they on can this They try subject. to continue to deny it and call it fake news and whatever, but you can't defend those kind of remarks. You just can't. There's no, no. there's no defense. I mean, there might be people that could defend it, but not a U.S. senator or, or an elected official. I mean, how, well, it would it would be preposterous to try to defend that. Yeah, not anybody likes their political career. Yeah, one of these right. defenses has been these. Well, now who are these anonymous, these unnamed sources? Blah blah blah. But you know, there's people coming forward like Woodward and Bernstein. Both today said, you know, we wrote 120 stories about Watergate, and just about every one of them featured anonymous or unnamed sources, that's how you get a lot of your news. And, and that's what all reporters do. And the problems Trump's got here is he's just getting hit from every side uh, by, by reporters who are saying, wait a minute. I mean, you know, this is what we do. I mean, he's got Fox News. They're, one of their reporters substantiating uh, parts of this thing, and he's calling for her to be fired. He's not saying they're true or not true. He's just screaming fire. He's got the Associated Press saying, yeah, this is true. And he's got a lot of these other people saying, yeah, you know, we've heard a lot of this. It's true. So, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know how he's going to walk his way through this minefield. They were going to roll out a big attack this week on uh, uh, our new vice presidential uh, candidate. Uh, they, they were going to start, you know, screaming socialist and left winger at her. <laughs> Didn't work with Biden. Now, I don't know if they're going to be able to do that. They're do, too busy, like you said, David, doing damage control, and the clock's ticking. We're 58 days till Election Day. Uh, I mean, in, in, in some select states, absentee ballots are already being requested and mailed out. We're, we're going into the election here. Uh, he's bleeding. Yeah, I, I think that's very key in that the cycle has moved up. Um, because people will put in votes um, well ahead of election day, and this is when, you know, particularly North Carolina voters start casting those mm -hmm. ballots. Um, there's so much more here, but we've we got a lot to cover this week. So let's kind of move into another, you know, media story. Um, and this is one that's not, to me, as clear cut. I want to know more information uh, about why it's coming about, and that was. Late in the week, it was announced that Stars and Stripes, uh, the military news publication, is was planning to close its doors during this month. I mean, like they were going to close up shop, consolidate, sell everything um, by the end of this month, and then Donald Trump stepped in and said, "We're not going to do that." Now, I want to know, you know, was this something they had planned? They looked at it and said, you know, with the internet, there's so many more news sources. And um, our, you know, troops don't need this anymore, you know, because we can turn it into a newsletter for other stuff. We don't need a true paper. And this is planned, you know, regardless of who is in charge of the government. Or is this something that um, some branch of the government wanted done and the Pentagon was pushed? Tim, do you know any more about those details or those questions? Well, I know the, a lot of the talking points on, on all of the cable news uh, networks 
have have pointed at the administration on this that this was not an idea that originated in the Pentagon and the internet thing probably wouldn't fly either because we have troops stationed all over the world in places where there's just, you know, not any good internet access locked out in, you know, combat zones in yes. uh, Afghanistan and stuff like that. And they depend on that newspaper. That That's a source of their information, and it's a place that, that uh, the average GI can read the thoughts of other average GIs without even – uh, the command structure of the military running it. That's the way it was designed. Uh, that was the way Blackjack Pershing, as a matter of fact, wanted it done. Uh, so it, it's been a lifeline to these people. And so it, it was believed that the administration was who wanted it gone for whatever reason, and that Trump stepped in only because this other situation you see came up uh, and he wanted to try to put a a good foot forward with the military by saying, look what I did for you. But but this part of it got kind of drowned out by, uh, of course, those obnoxious comments that he had already made. So that's what that's that's what they're talking about. Yes. Now, now, Catherine, once again, I don't know all of the inner workings of this, but it seems like if there was no political, you know, um, catalyst to this, the way to do it would say in six months we're going to close up, then that would go across, you know, likely two administrations. And if it's something the Pentagon wanted done and they had studied, it'd be one thing, but if it was a political action – um, it's very unlikely that it would survive through two administrations, correct? Well, um, yeah. that sounds correct. Though I did also, I, in the article that I read about it, uh, President Obama did consider shutting it down a couple of times too. So this isn't new. It's It's been entertained, uh, and I think before uh, President Obama as well. And yeah. the explanation that I read, was that um, it was in part due to the demands for cuts in uh, the Pentagon budget, the military budget, and that this was one cost-cutting. I'm not saying that that's the case, but that was one of the arguments that was made. Um, The problem there, Catherine, with that argument that they make, and I'm, I've heard that one too, is that its budget's what about fifteen million dollars out of a out of a defense budget that's close to seven hundred billion. So they probably yeah. ain't going to get far with that argument, are they? Well, that's true. Um, yeah. You know, I uh, I've never seen a copy of Stars and Stripes, so I don't know uh, how. Uh, if it's like a newspaper or more like a newsletter or um, if it's like it's heavy on news and I, I don't know. I've never seen it. Um, I've always it is a thought, paper. Yeah. So I've always thought it was a little weird to have. A, um, I mean, it comes very close to propaganda when you're, you know, publishing a, when the government is publishing a paper for its military. So, but again, I've never seen a copy of it, so I can't really, Um, I can't really comment on that. It's just the thought that I've had over the years. But I do think there's, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead, Catherine. But there, I do believe there's a place for some kind of uh, publication for the military, like a, um, not a newsletter, but for internal communication. seems to me that that's a, a, a perfectly valid um, use of uh, American taxpayer money to keep the military informed. I just wonder about, you know, if it's a heavily – heavily news than how much is influenced by whomever's writing it. Go ahead, um, Tim. You, you know more about it than I do. Yeah. yeah uh, I, I actually had seen some copies of it. My father had had
had some, and so had both of uh, my brothers who who were in the military back in the fifties and sixties. Um, it, it's it, it's it's been on and off since like eighteen sixty one, and it really was designed as a paper for the average serviceman. Uh, the only censor type things you saw from the military was like during World War II, they didn't want to tip off the Germans, for instance, how well or how badly the bombing raids were going uh, right. against Europe from England. So they would censor stuff like that. But uh, like Andy Rooney, that's where he first came to notoriety, was riding oh, really? the Stars and Stripes. It, it was... Uh, Ernie Powell, who was who was killed near the end of the war, uh, wrote for him. Uh, uh, several, a lot of famous journalists who were drafted into the military during World War II, especially, wrote for him. And so uh, it's it's always been a paper that really was not controlled by the upper brass of the military, and especially not by the civilian government who basically okay. had nothing to do with it. But what civilian government can do is, uh, you know, fund it or cut off the funding. Now, I don't know if Trump and them could do that, but I guess the, the Pentagon could. Well, I'll go ahead and wrap this up for right now. If you want to judge for yourself, their website is stripes.com. They went ahead and shortened it just to stripes.com so you can look and see what they have on it on the web version. But right now, I'd like to welcome in our guest for the first time to the Kudzu Vine, Mr. Drew Savaki. Welcome, Drew. Hi. <clears throat> Hi, thanks. Yes. Well, Drew, um, first off, since it's your first time on the Kudzu Vine, we know you from 270 to Win and Election Twitter. Just kind of tell us about your um, background heavy on the politics. So um, I really only started doing this uh, a few years ago. Uh, I started getting into this stuff uh, really during the 2016 primaries is, is what really did it for me with uh, Bernie Sanders running is what really interested me. As I had been vaguely aware of who he was um, prior to his first run, but I wasn't super familiar with him. I thought it was... Uh, Really quite a fascinating thing to watch. Yeah, so um, you just kind of, like any good citizen, just started getting interested in politics, no um, work in anything else or study anywhere? Yeah, no, no. Um, as I mentioned uh, many times before on Twitter, I don't have a college degree. Um, I didn't finish um I've been to community college, but I, I never got a degree. Hmm. Sure thing. Yeah, well, hey, you're an American citizen, and, and really that's not even that's not even a requirement to be interested in politics because, you know, some of us follow other countries as well. Yeah. Um, well let's, let's kind of move into some of the political discussion. Well, first off, we mentioned you wrote for 270 to win. Uh, tell us about how all that got started. Um, well, um, a few months ago, their uh, previous writer um, I, um, had um, some things come up, and he, and he couldn't continue the series anymore, so he uh, uh, recommended me uh, to 270 to win, and they reached out to me and asked me if I'd be interested in doing it. And I said, yeah, um, I thought it'd be a great opportunity, and, so every week I cover uh, a different state, and as we progress towards election day, we get to the more and more competitive one. All right. Well, I have to look and see if you wrote on New Hampshire. I have a paper due Tuesday morning, five page on comparing and contrasting the politics of and culture of uh, Vermont and New Hampshire. So I'll have to look oh, yeah. into that. Um, well, uh, well, one more question I have, and this is politically related, then I'm going to pass it over to uh, Tim and Catherine. And, and that would be, and I know you've uh, uh, tweeted about this on Twitter, so many Republican former officials um, in the you know, Bush White House and the um, McCain campaign and the um, 
Romney campaign have endorsed Joe Biden. They've just said that they're supporting him. Um, even people that ran against, uh, you know, Donald Trump, like um, John Kasich, uh, even at the Democratic convention, there was like five people that had held elective office as Republicans all endorsed Joe Biden. How much of an mm-hmm. impact do you think all of those endorsements are going to have in this uh, campaign? Well, you know, probably my theory is probably not much in most of the states, but uh, Kasich's endorsement is probably the most significant, given that he was a two-term, a recent two-term governor of Ohio, um, and he's still, uh, you know, I mean, he won two big elections in the state in 2014. You know, he won something like almost 70% of the vote. So he is a very popular figure in his home state of Ohio. Um, especially around the uh, Columbus suburbs, where he previously represented a district in the House from the 1980s until around 2000. And so I think that could potentially play a big deal in those areas. Uh, Because, you know, I I mean, Trump will still probably win Ohio, but uh, I think the Kasich endorsement probably gets some votes for Biden there, just given his He's been a very long-time figure in the state. People know him. He's a known quantity. Um, I think probably one of the most significant endorsements was um, Evan McMullen, who was the uh, third-party Mormon candidate in 2016. Um, He got a a very big share of the vote in Utah, and he recently endorsed Biden. And I think that's worth watching. Trump will still definitely carry Utah, but I'm curious to see how much of the of the McMullen vote does go to Biden, and whether Mormons have you know um, are still souring on the president as they did in 2016. Yes, that is interesting. And even a state like Arizona that has a decent-sized Mormon population yeah. might have more impact there. Well, let's go back to Ohio. Before I pass this thing over, you got me intrigued. You said you think uh, Donald Trump will hold that. At what point is there kind of the tipping point in which Ohio um, flips in your mind? Does Joe Biden have to have a five-point victory, an eight-point victory, a ten-point victory for um, Ohio to come and play? Probably ten points, just given that uh, given that it did have such a sharp swing to Trump from you know from Obama. I believe you know I believe it was like a four-point Obama win and about an eight and a half point Trump win. So that's a pretty big shift, despite only a two-point shift in the national popular vote. So uh, for for Biden to carry the state, he's got to win the national popular vote probably by double digits. I I would think that's probably the bare minimum, just given the state's right for flipped. Yeah, that's Um, interesting to watch because Ohio, we've known, has been such a swing state and past yeah. election until this past one. Well, I'm going to pass it over to Tim, and she'll pass it to Catherine. Tim? Good evening, Drew. Thank you for being with us. And uh, before I ask you any questions, I just wanted to tell you that I'm one fella for whom 270 to win is required viewing practically every day. It's a wonderful site. I enjoy reading your work on there, and uh, it's just a great site. I wanted you to know that. Um, You have covered a lot of states, and uh, I never dreamed that I would be talking to anyone on here seven weeks before the election about a state like South Carolina, but there's a couple of races I wanted to ask you about there, and one of them you've written about in 2018, Joe Cunningham became the first white Democrat to win a seat in the Deep South, well, in quite a while, I guess since Barra in Georgia. Uh, yeah. But, 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 but Donald Trump won Cunningham's district handily in 2016, and so the question is, will Cunningham survive this year? Um, I think so, yeah. Yeah, Cunningham has proven to have a pretty solid brand down there, despite being new to elected office. This is the first time he's ever run for office. It's not like he was a state legislator or something. He's done a pretty solid Mm -hmm. job of establishing himself. And this is a pretty suburban seat. 
you know, it's mostly uh, based in Charleston. It was never intended to be drawn as a seat that Democrats could win, you know, because uh, Charleston is split between uh, Jim Clyburn's district and the first mm-hmm. congressional district. So the majority black precincts are all in the sixth district, leaving only the white precincts. They never imagined that this would flip. There was no indication that these solidly Republican white voters would ever be electing a Democrat. But uh, Cunningham has really proven himself. He's struck a moderate tone. And uh, there was a recent state house special uh, located within the within the first congressional district that flipped to the Democrats by a pretty substantial margin. Uh, and, uh, and a lot of other legislative seats in that area, Democrats are targeting in order to prevent Republicans from gaining a supermajority. As it, I mm-hmm. believe it's the only state in the Deep South where Republicans do not have supermajorities in either chamber of the legislature. Mm. Wow. Yeah. Now, yeah. South so, Carolina has uh, proven pretty interesting in, the, in these past couple of years. The low country is doing. Yeah. yeah. So, so another race, I want, another another race I wanted to ask you about there, and I didn't dream I'd be asking about this this year either. But uh, the Democrats fielded quite a good candidate in the U.S. Senate race, and and Jamie Harrison, and a lot of polls are showing a very very tight race for Lindsey Graham there. Uh, is Lindsey Graham in any trouble this year? Uh, he seems to be. Uh, Republicans are taking this race pretty seriously. I mean, Harrison is easily the best Democratic Senate candidate in South Carolina in many, many years. Uh, this was a party that in 2010 nominated some random guy uh, against mm-hmm. Jim DeMint. Uh, so it's it's incredible to see a, a not only a, a competent Democratic candidate in South Carolina, but one that's raising serious cash. Uh, Harrison is very charismatic, too, and, and I think that helps a great deal. He is a very charming figure. But, mm. um, and it's important to run black candidates for the Senate and the South. Mike Espy in 2018 in Mississippi did fairly well against mm-hmm. uh, the appointed senator Cindy Hyde-Smith, in what is mm-hmm. a very inelastic state. I mean, holding her to an eight-point win, that's pretty impressive for a Democrat in the Deep South to get mm-hmm. some decent support among white voters, particularly a black Democrat to win white voters. That's, that's yes. impressive. That's, so, that is, uh, uh, so, so we're going to go from the Deep South all the way across to the Great Northwest now. And, and again, I didn't think I'd be talking to anybody about Montana this year but there's an interesting race developing there now why does the state of montana seem more willing to vote for democrats down ballot than at the presidential level and secondly will steve bullock be one of those democrats that breaks through this year that's a good question i think one of the issues that separates down ballot democrats against mm-hmm. you in montana uh, obviously, the Democratic Party nominee for president is not going to be particularly pro-gun. So they're not going to do very well in Montana, but down ballot, they're generally pretty decent on the issue, uh, particularly John Tester um, um, and authenticity cells as well. Montana is one of those states that's not very friendly to outsiders. Generally, if, you, if you're not born in the state, they're probably not going to elect you to office. They really value that authenticity of their mm-hmm. elected official. Regardless of whether mm-hmm. you agree with Don Tester, I think everyone agrees that he's, pretty, he's a pretty authentic guy. <clears throat> he has that he has that air of authenticity to him. You look at him, you look at a picture of him, and you say, it's, it's pretty believable that he's from Montana, just looking mm-hmm. at a picture of the guy. You know, he yeah. comes across <laughs> rugged. Yeah, he, he has all those characteristic of someone you think is a Montana office holder. And Steve Bullock has proven pretty popular to getting two terms as governor. Before that, he was state attorney general. 
So he's a known quantity to voters. The only thing is, is that he's never run for a federal office before, particularly mm-hmm. in a presidential year. That's, that adds another challenge because, you know, it's one thing for John Tester to get reelected in the midterm year. It's another to be running in a presidential year where there are fewer crossover voters. But Steve Bullock has gotten those voters a couple of times now. You know, so that sort of balances it out. He has proven appeal with those Republican voters. They've voted for him three times. So I, I think he can make a solid argument. And Montana, one of the things that makes the state interesting is that it always swings against the incumbent president. It just does. It always, it, it consistently moves against the incumbent president. They always mm. seem to sour on whoever the incumbent is. They don't seem to care. They don't seem to like you. You're the incumbent president. <laughs> they seem to move against you regardless of party. You know, Obama did wow. worse there in 2012. Bush did worse there in 2004, despite doing better nationally from 2000. I don't know why. Montana just seems to sour on the incumbent president immediately. As soon as you take wow. office, they seem, to, they seem to get frustrated. It, it is an wow. interesting thing. Compared to, uh, yeah, I mean, it's about as red as, you know, say, Missouri. I think one of the big issues is there's not a whole lot of evangelicals in Montana, whereas there's plenty of evangelicals in Missouri. There's no Mm. shortage of them in Missouri. Yeah, uh, religiosity seems to be one of those big issues. so, so, So that would make the voters in Montana more independent in their voting? Yes, definitely. Yeah, I oh, would say so. Well, yeah, they're far more well, that, open to a Democrat. Oh well, that that that's interesting. I appreciate you uh, being on with us tonight, Drew, and I'm going to pass it over to Catherine now. Catherine, sorry, I was on mute. Um, thanks for being on with us tonight, Drew. Um, it's really interesting to hear what you have to say about these various states. I have a um. A little bit different question, and uh, maybe it's not something that you've been looking at. If that's the case, we can move on to something else. But I'm really curious if you have any thoughts about um, this new cycle that we're in. You know, some people are going to start voting as soon as this week. Uh, Absentee ballots are going out. Uh, Early voting starts in some states, you know, three to five weeks ahead of um, Election Day. And I just wonder how, if you have any thoughts about what kind of impact that's going to have on the election and then also on polling, because once people start voting, then how do you uh, adjust those polls to reflect uh, the fact that people have already voted? Yeah. um, Yeah, I think it will have a pretty big impact on the election this time because there are a lot fewer undecideds in this election than there were four years ago. So a lot of people are going to cast their ballots earlier. They're not, you know, on the fence as they were four years ago. And that probably hurts Trump quite a bit as he needs a lot of those voters who were on the fence about him last time. Uh, You know, the earlier ballots go out, the less time there is for Trump to turn things around. He really needs to find some way to, uh, to convince voters that he's on the right track. Uh, as the more votes that are cast, the harder it's going to get for him. And as for polling, that, that is a good question. As pollsters, as we get closer to Election Day, pollsters screen for likely voters. Well, it gets hard to screen for likely voters when a significant chunk of people have already voted. Yeah. Um, that, that could, yeah, I hadn't thought of that. That could really pose a problem with uh, polling. I'm, I'm not sure what they do when they, uh, yeah, because that that will leave a smaller list of people to call because they're going to check the you know, voter rolls and stuff like that. If everybody's already voted, that uh, that could have a real real impact on polling. Definitely, that's a good question. Yeah. Uh, I'll jump in here. Um, One of our frequent guests, Tom Jensen of Public Policy Polling, they do a really good job. They'll go ahead and call people, and one of the questions they ask, they say, have you already voted? 
and they'll get a breakout of numbers of people that have already voted and people that are still vote yeah or vote on election day, and they give you a breakout. So when y'all when more public policy polling comes out as early voting starts, look for those breakout numbers. Yes, yes, they get um, um, I think a lot of conservatives dismiss uh, PPP because they uh, are a Democratic pollster, but no, they're actually a pretty solid polling outlet, and they're fairly accurate, and I think they get a bad rap often. They do a good job. They're, they're a pretty solid pollster. Now, the other... Yeah. On the other side of um, this early voting and absentee voting is I think we're all sort of bracing for um, some delays in the reporting. You know, we all have come to expect to go to bed on election night with a pretty good sense of who the next president is going to be. And it's looking more and more like we might not have that this year. Of course, we didn't have it four years ago either. But um, how do you think that's going to shake out? Like, not, um, I mean, it's not going to have, probably have any impact on actual voting, but how do you think that's going to work? I, I mean, there's been already worries that uh, the president will claim victory if he wins, if he is ahead on election night, and then try to stop all the counting. But how do we, are we, are we just going to have to get used to that um, change that we're not going to know on election night anymore, and is that a bad thing? Um, well, some states can. I think a lot of it depends on whether states are willing to push for changes in how they count ballots ahead of time, as a lot of states don't, particularly in the swing states. Many of the states don't start tabulating ballots until polls close. Um, I know the governor of Pennsylvania is pushing to change that, and that would be a good thing um, if, if we can get them to start counting ballots as they arrive rather than waiting until Election Day. Um, and one of the big issues with mail-in ballots that was seen in the New York primary is the reduction rate on things like, you know, if they don't have a stamp, if they don't have the correct signature, that's... Uh, uh, there was a pretty high rejection rate on those mail-in ballots in, in New York primary, and that could be a problem for Biden if the marrows, if if the margins are pretty narrow in the swing states. Uh, that could be a problem for Biden because most of the mail-in ballots are probably going to skew pretty heavily Democratic, given Trump's uh, and given Trump's instructions to his base to vote in person. That could be that. That could be a real issue, right? If, if the rejection rate remains so high in some of these states. Okay, well, that's uh, that's a good concern. I, I'm uh, I'm concerned about the mail-in ballots anyway, but that's a whole other story. Um, I'm going to pass it back to David for more questions. Thank you, Drew. Yes. Well, Drew, we thank you for coming on tonight. Before you leave our um, listeners, tell them the most direct ways they could get to your um, articles and your uh, social media musings. Uh, well, they can um, every week. They can go to two seventy to win on Mondays, uh, or when my articles come out. And so, since it's Sunday, my article will be out tomorrow on Pennsylvania, which I just wrapped up today. Um, and they can follow me on Twitter. Uh, my handle is at Senor Raposa, and I can spell that out if I need to for people. Uh, it's uh, uh, S-E-N-H-O-R-R-A-P-O-S-A. Yes, well, excellent. Um, I follow you on Twitter. Uh, at reply every once in a while to something you have to say. And it uh, sounds like Tim's from reading 270 to win. Your article's there. I'm going to need to start uh, going back and reading those and um, uh, adding that to my knowledge base of your um, political understanding. But thanks again for coming on tonight, Drew. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you, sir. Yes, I was Drew Savicki of uh, 270 Win and Election Twitter. 
and glad to have Drew on. Uh, interesting, and I think he's going to stay involved in politics, so hopefully we can have Drew back in the future. Um, but now let's turn to a topic that you know we actually had on the, the back burner because we couldn't get to it last week, but it's still raging on, and that's uh, COVID-19 coronavirus. But in particular, on college campuses, uh, colleges started getting back um, later in the month of August, and we've seen upticks. I guess one of the more notable is the University of Alabama. I think it went from like uh, 500 to 1,200 cases in like a 48-hour period. I tried to look to see if there's any numbers there, um, but it's happened at a lot of different universities. Um, you know, it's just a place where a lot of kids go to college and they want to go to a party and a party with masks and everybody six feet away is, is not what they um, had dreamt of, let's say. Um, also, you have people coming from different homes, you know, could be living in close quarters in some cases. It depends on, I guess, cost of college sharing, um, you know, restrooms and showers and everything else. Um, the classes themselves, from my understanding, are not – what's causing the virus to spread at the college campuses, it's the other parts of student life. Um, Catherine, what have you seen uh, amongst college campuses around the country? Well, you know, being from uh, originally from the home of the University of Michigan, I have a lot of connections there and hear a lot about what's going on there. So that's my best reference. And they're having a lot of problems there. You know, they, the first weekend before classes even started, they had a huge um, a huge uptick in the dorms after everybody moved into the dorms. And there's v very, um, you know, lots of parties, lots of pictures of parties, and the bars are hopping and, you know, the streets are crowded. And uh, I just, I think it's really, I think we've all, um, you know, uh, sort of reached our capacity for, well, not reached our capacity, but approaching our capacity for living with this, uh, you know, pandemic and staying inside. And, you know, I I mean, I, I hit a wall this week and just was like, when is this going to end? When are we going to? And I think everybody's feeling that. It's just a question of how you, how it manifests. And I think with young people, it manifests by, you know, I'm just going to go out and live my life and go to this party and, and, uh, it's not going to, I'm young. I'm not going to, if I get sick, I'm not going to, I'm not going to die. I think that, you know, we've all seen over generations that young people don't think that these things affect us, affect them. That's why they don't buy health insurance. That's why they, you know, drink to excess. I mean, it's, there's, this is just a, a further manifestation of those, uh, the belief that youth will, save us, save you. So, but it's very discouraging to see the college campuses not really doing anything about it. I mean, in a lot of the examples I've read is they're not really policing it. They're not stopping these parties. They're not stopping the uh, frat houses from having these parties. So I don't, I, I don't know what the solution is, but it's, it looks like it's just going to keep going. Well, I have heard some places they suspended students and did different stuff, and they are trying to crack down. There's probably just too much to crack down on for one thing. And two, I guess they have the dilemma if, you know, everything's going to be virtual schooling at college where people pay tuition and sometimes uh, you could argue overpay tuition, then um, they could just go to their local community college and sit at home and learn uh, far, far cheaper. And so, uh, particularly these private colleges that have much higher tuition are in a real bind. Now, I was talking about University of Alabama, uh, a public institution in that case. There, the mayor of Tuscaloosa actually did close down the bars. Um, uh, I've forgotten his full name, Walt. Um, he, he went ahead and closed down uh, – Walt Maddox. He closed down the um, you know, the bars in Tuscaloosa, so we'll see if some other college cities do that as well. Tim, what's your take? Well, I was looking at some stats. Uh, I was reading a story about University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, Notre Dame, Michigan State. 
All three of those schools have already been forced to return to remote learning. I say return because they were going to do that at first, then they went to in-person, and uh, they discovered on testing that something like 13.6% of their students that were tested tested positive, which is a very, very, very high rate of anybody anywhere. Uh, when most states that are testing are seeing like a 10% and calling it high uh, of of the overall uh, body. Uh, when when you have that many students and doing the types of things, especially that Catherine was talking about, the social aspect, it, um, it, it means that, that these schools and schools that remain open, like Alabama, like, over at Tuscaloosa, like you were talking about, are seeing these surges. Uh, schools are reacting by ramping up their testing. Got a little problem there. Some schools simply do not have the financial resources to do the heavy testing that that other schools can do. I doubt if I'm not picking on this school, but let's just grab Reinhardt, a small college at Waleska. I doubt if they could do the type of testing that, uh, I don't know, Vanderbilt, let's say, could do because they don't have the financial resources that it would take to do it. Uh, another thing they need to look at in stats, only 36% of parents of college students want full-time in-person school right now. So the majority, two-thirds of all the parents of college students do not want full-time in-person school. Uh, colleges need to look at that. I know there's money that we're talking about in these college towns. There's always economics in the mix. But, you know, I, and I know there's just no good choices, guys, but you know, the the first choice has got to be health. It's got to be the health of the people. That's got to come before economics or, or anything else. Wouldn't you agree with that, David? Well, and you mentioned that 30-something percent of parents. I wonder if the parents are thinking, well, we could send our child to a cheaper college online for this year and save some money. I, I mean, because sometimes the, the students and the, the parents might have different well, goals. There. Um, now, one thing I want to ask is, and, and here's going to be the complication. You have the faculty, you have the food service, you have the other support staff, the janitorial staff, that all are going to leave the campus and come back to the campus. But as far yeah. as those students, and, and you now don't have so many that live off campus, but in a situation where you had maybe a kind of a closed system where almost all students lived on campus, I wonder, you know, the MBA was pretty successful with their bubble. Um, could a college campus try to create a bubble-like atmosphere? And once again, I just don't know what you do with the support staffs um, at that point. But you almost could keep the uh, student body. You'd have to do the testing in the front side. But I wonder if there's a way you could do a bubble. Any idea? Oh, I think – I think that would be really hard. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you could probably do it in a small school, you know, like like Barry College in, in Rome, you might be able to do that. Um, but when you get into a big school like like UGA or um, Tech or, you know, University of Michigan, University of Alabama, you just have people, you know, you have a really big support staff. You've got administrative staff. You've got janitorial staff. You've got food service. You've got faculty um, I mean, you've got the people who work in the parking deck. I mean, everybody. And so often in those um, environments, they come from far away. Um, a lot of um, support staff can't afford to live in a college town, so they live, you know, 30 miles away. So we're expanding that circle of potential um, infection. So I just think it would be really – I'm not saying it's a, it's impossible, but it would be really tricky 
to try to do that successfully at, at anything but a very small school. I agree. Yeah. But the, the reason I do think that it's interesting is you've got all these retirement homes, nursing homes, that the support staff does not stay there all the time. They go back and forth, and we know if those folks get sick, what that's going to do. And um, well, how have they been control that. that support staff? Catherine? But we've already proven that because yep. so many people have died in nursing homes. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. And so if they if they they have to have some way now to control that support staff because if they don't, we know the implications, the ramifications of that. Um, so it, it's kind of tricky to think about because here's the trick: if this vaccine is coming in the next few months, and obviously we know the November first has political implications, but let's say it's coming. December 31st or, or what have you, um, then we can figure out how to ride it out. But if, if this thing's going to continue on for months on end, you know, this becomes a very different discussion. Also, then it becomes a world discussion, not a this local city, this local college, this local uh, or this state, this country. It becomes an international discussion if we're going to look at this yeah. as a, a human race well, for the next, you know, seven, eight more months. Tim? Uh, David, uh, uh, let's just take this town of Athens, the city of Athens. That whole city is the support system for the University of Georgia. Yeah, it's like exactly. 40,000 students there. They are all over that town. They live both on and off the campus in, in probably yeah. equal or, or more numbers. Uh, half of that town or more works around that school or in some kind of restaurant that supports the school or something over there. And and Catherine's right. There's just, there's no way. There's no way it, it could be it, it could be possible to 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 do it. Guys, you know what? I still think we should look at what other countries did. They shut the country down for a few weeks. At the start of this thing, and now look how much better they all are than than we are. I still say, and, and that's that right now. Yeah, we could have tested more and everything else, but now it's too late. We're the breeding ground um, for it. Well, now, shut and, the country down. Living off campus is a problem. Obviously, in the bubble, I mean, if you hear about the NBA bubble, they had a, a certain list of restaurants that you could get takeout from. It had to be delivered. They had just certain delivery people that would deliver the food. So, therefore, you couldn't go to the restaurants. I mean, it has to be, I mean, it, it would probably be too hard to do with 18 to 24 year olds and get them to buy in. So, it's probably just a, a you know, one of one of those exercises you do just for thought because it won't work in reality. Um, but that, you know, that's just something I thought about. Um, guys, got about two minutes. I wanted to go with something quick, real uh, real quick. Um, Tim, I'm gonna go to you first on this. A picture came out with congressional candidate Marjorie Green holding a gun, looking like some kind of spy assassin, in front of a poster of three sitting um, congresswomen. Um, Astacia Cortez, um, Ilhan Omar, and um, Rashida Tlaib. Um, Twitter and Facebook and every other social media, I guess, took it down because it violated the violence um, policies. Um, how offensive and bad was this? It, it was very offensive. The word, I think, is fringe. The word I think is dangerous. Uh, there, there are just too many people that would look at this and what she said, which is, you know, we need to go on the attack against these socialists, and they, they would interpret it to mean we should commit, you know, random acts of violence against these people or threaten them or, or that sort of thing. There's just no place in this society for such a thing, and and I just I, I do I do not understand why uh, anyone would think that it it was a a good a good idea to 
to even even do such a thing. I'm I'm just uh, uh, you you think you get to the point where you can't be shocked anymore, and then and then suddenly you are. And to their credit, uh, social media all with one voice took it down, and uh, it's it, it's just it's just really a shame that certain people think they have to do things like that. And uh, you know, I hope nobody is hurt. As a result, I mean, physically hurt, injured, or, or worse, uh, on on account of something like this hap- happening. Remember Pizzagate, guys. Remember that. Well, she believes in that, Catherine. The odds are that all four of those women will serve in Congress together, starting in January. What's that meeting going to be like when Marjorie Green runs into uh, one of these women in the halls of Congress? I I have no idea. I I just hope that uh, Marjorie Green is uh, shunned by everyone. That's my hope that that people don't don't engage with her and just let her sit by herself and not not uh, mix or talk with anyone. That that would be the right thing. Uh, unfortunately, odds are they won't on the Republican side of the aisle um, because I think they understand that she, unfortunately, has the imagination of a lot of Republicans around the country uh, and that kind of talk. Um, it will be interesting to see what happens at the national level, the top level of the ticket, and how that shifts down. Maybe that brings some sanity to the Republican Party, and they kind of you know, have that reckoning they talked about after 2012. Um, but we shall see. Until next week, though, it's been the Cudsy Vine. Good night, Good night guys. We are the heirs of that first revolution with a strong and united America.